The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. 20 years with Coronado and Stone. Uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Paul Gatz. I'm director of the Brewers Association. Uh, Savor is put on by the Brewers Association, and we really appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, we've got a special treat for you tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to do a salon called 20 Years of, with Coronado and Stone. Uh, both these companies have been open for 20 years now, and to celebrate their uh, friends and neighbors in San Diego County, uh, they decided to do a beer together, which uh, I guess we're all going to get the first taste of uh, tonight. Um, so, uh, a couple later after you <laughs> <laughs> A couple quick uh, housekeeping announcements. Uh, the glassware that the beer is being poured in comes from Spiegelau, and uh, you're free to take it with you. So if you want an extra glass, take that. Uh, the volunteers will be handling all the beer service. Um, when we get, uh, feel free to uh, raise your hand or get my attention in some way if you want to ask a question, and I'll hand you the microphone because um, we do want them on microphone because these uh, are being taped by craftbeerradio.com. We have Greg and Nick who are going to be taking care of uh, that taping, and then they'll show up on craftbeer.com in about a week. So you'll be able to hear what you, what you thought you heard. You'll be able to hear, hear for real in about a week. Um, with that, I'm going to introduce our presenters. Uh, we have Ryan Brooks, head brewer of Coronado, Rick Chapman, co-founder and president of Coronado Brewing Company, Steve Wagner, co-founder and president of Stone Brewing Company, and Dr. Bill Sizek, craft beer ambassador for Stone Brewing Company. So please join me in welcoming these guys. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys to uh, talk a little bit about how you got into brewing and how you got into beer and uh, a little bit about your own personal stories. So Rick Chapman, uh, Coronado Brewing Company. I owned a coffee shop in Coronado back in the 80s and early 90s and uh, found the property where we put our brew pub, our first brewery in Coronado. In 1996, we opened. My brother and I are partners. He's... He's the CEO, I'm the president, and uh, we've been, we're sharing our 20th year anniversary with Stone this year. Stone opened about three weeks before Coronado as a production brewery and distribution. So. And they were actually our first distributor once we got our brew pub up and going and started distributing beer throughout San Diego. So it's been an incredible 20 year ride. Uh, we now have a production, we now have a production facility over in San Diego that we opened. Uh, we're in our fourth year right now. Um, we, we're up to about 45,000 barrels a year out of our production and, and our brew pub. So it's been a great time. We uh, just launched cans uh, about two months ago. So keep an eye out for those cans out there. I'll let uh, Steve tell you a little bit about Stone Brewing. Uh, thanks for being here, everybody. This is a treat. I love doing these salons. Um, I'm actually a native of Chicago, but my family moved to Southern California when I was about 10 years old. Uh, I was an English literature major at UC Santa Cruz. Any fighting banana slugs here tonight? Yeah, I didn't think so. There never are. I don't know why. But um, So uh, upon, <laughs> yeah, I was actually a uh, professional musician for about 
10, 10 plus years after college, and uh, I met my future beer partner, Greg Cook. He was my rock and roll landlord. Uh, my band rented rehearsal space from him in downtown Los Angeles. And as he tells the story, he didn't know me that well because my band used to pay their rent on time. But uh, we were acquaintances, and we actually developed, uh, you know, independently developed an interest in craft beer. I was in a, a band with a guy who made his own beer, and I started home brewing. And uh, he was building another rehearsal studio in San Francisco and started getting into the craft beer scene up there. And this is the early 90s. And uh, we both ended up at UC Davis taking an extension class to uh, learn more about sensory evaluation of beer. And it was one of those, uh, what are you doing here moments? You know, I looked across the room and I saw this long haired guy and I was like, that is my rock and roll landlord, isn't it? Yeah, so I think that after that class that day over a beer, we started talking about starting our own brewery and uh, ended up doing it in 1996 down in San Diego. So it's a short stone story. A little more about Coronado. My brother and I, neither of us are, were brewers, so um, we got our, my barista at the coffee shop and night manager, Sean DeWitt, we asked him if he wanted to learn to brew beer. As we were starting this venture, we raised a bunch of capital to open our, our brew pub, and Sean said, sure. So he went down the street to La Jolla Brewing Company, where he brewed during the day for about six months. He learned to brew beer. And he developed our first IPA, our Islander IPA, with uh, John Atwater of La Jolla Brewing Company. Sean is with us still today. He's our director of brewing operations. He uh, works closely. Ryan's our brewmaster. He's been with us, what, four years now? Five years, excuse me. Been making incredible award-winning beers. So that's a little more about our story. We'll give you some more as the night goes on. Appreciate you all being here. So Islander started out, Islander IPA was one of four beers that started out as Coronado's uh, main beers. It was an IPA at the time of um, a lot of, it's an old school IPA. Dry yeast was the thing. They didn't have White Labs as a, a yeast company in San Diego at that time. So it's a very new, new school IPA being Chinook forward. Um, there was no dry hopping in this beer, so if you get the, is it, is it pouring right now? Let's see if it, uh, okay. Okay, so this beer has gone through a whole transition. When I, when I first started, um, the history of this beer was dry yeast, Chinook IPA, Chinook forward IPA, um, no dry hop, dry yeast, very kind of simple IPA at the time. When I came on, we've, we've changed this beer to be a very uh, a, a hop forward kind of beer. So we've, we've revamped the recipe quite a bit to be um, citrusy, resiny, danky, and we've changed the yeast quite a bit. And the, the, the hop proof. Yeah, I need Tropical. The biggest thing we did start to do is change the dry hop, dry hop on it. Um, it's much more fruity and tropical. Just, just West Coast forward. No, I'm definitely not that now. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm drunk, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I want actually you guys to ask me a question about this beer. When you, when you try it, give me your tasting points. I want to ask home brewers if they're in, in the house questions. Give me, give me, taste, give me uh, talking points. Is this your first time trying this beer? Definitely peachy. Okay, I get a little bit of licorice in the middle, a little anise licorice in the middle. So I think that would come from the the Columbus. We we bitter it with CTZ, which is a Columbus Tomahawk Zeus derivative, and then it's it's a big forward Chinook and Centennial and Cascade. So you're getting a lot of the, the big pungent citrus resiny forms of, of, of hop. And it changes from year to year. That's the hardest part, hardest part for my job is we get Columbus, we get Centennial, we get Columbus and our Chinook. And it comes to us, it's like, oh, here's what we buy. And it changes every year. So sometimes we get this big, punchy, resiny, hoppy, fruity thing. And then all of a sudden it becomes very resinous and very piney. So every year we've had to kind of like find out what, what variety we're getting and learn how to, learn how to tweak, tweak these things. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun, it's, a, it's annoying, it it's, pisses me off sometimes. But we've always had to like kind of play with it and learn how to, how to deal with it. So I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. Um, we've got a few more to try tonight. But uh, I'm, this is a fairly fresh version of it. It's funny to see it travel 3,000 miles and get to you in a fairly fresh form. What, what would you pair it with? I got this. It's, it's really crispy. I, I'm getting scallops, uh, something nice and <laughs> crisp with it. Well, what, do you, what would you uh, pair I, it with? I'm the, I'm the asshole that wants to just eat cheese pizza with this beer. Or, uh, or uh, cheese pizza sounds good. I like that. I like that cheese pizza um, with bacon. I don't know. We, we, this is this is a drinking man's beer. This I am a drinking man. <laughs> I am a, I am a drinking man. <laughs> I think I think most of us in the brewery go to this beer. Is our end of day beer, end of day beer. We just started canning it uh, six months ago. And it's one of the most popular beers for us to take home as brewers and, and people in the tasting room. So I don't know. I, I just I, I find it is a it's been a staple since day one in 1996, and and gone through a, a huge evolution. And we've just noticed this big like piney, citrusy, punchy. It, it just changes. No, 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 no. Wait for the mic. Wait for the mic. Wait for the mic. Bronx pizza and yeah. Uh, yeah, that's probably the, my favorite. Cool. But yeah, Islander IPA, it's definitely influenced off of uh, Stone IPA. When I first got in the, in the beer tasting, it was like, oh, Stone Arrogant Bastard and Stone IPA. Bring the citrus, bring the pine, bring the full flavor, bring the IBUs. So if it wasn't for Stone, I wouldn't be here. 
So I'm going to let Steve Wagner, our original brewmaster, talk about Stone IPA first. But first, I wanted to introduce myself. Uh, I have two things to tell you before that. Uh, one, we have these fancy silver buckets on the table. Those are called dump buckets. But the beers are all really good. So I recommend you guys do the left to right method. Look to your left, look to your right. Somebody will probably take the beer off your hands if you don't want to finish it. Um, also, everybody in here like IPA? Because if not, you're in the wrong room. Okay. <laughs> because we're all doing IPAs, so. Uh, anyways, my name's Bill Sysak. I'm known as Dr. Bill in the craft beer community. I've been with Stone for a little over seven years. I'm the craft beer ambassador. Not the craft brand ambassador, because I support all craft beer, but I'm a proponent. I, I obviously am employed by Stone, but I'm, I handle our beverage philosophy for all of our craft beers there. I've been around craft beer, though, for 39 years this year. I'm not quite that old. I started at 15, that's another story. But I was considered the grandfather of beer geeks, basically. And then when I retired from the medical field, uh, I'd been friends with Greg and Steve since pretty much the first year and came and worked for them. In a little bit, I'm going to tell you guys the history, modern history of IPAs. But first, I'd like to hand it over to Steve Wagner and let him tell you a little about the Stone IPA, which you had first. And if you want more, there's apparently more bottles. So you can just hold up your hand. I'm sure they'll pour it for you. Steve? <laughs> All right. So... Uh Stone IPA was actually the uh, third year-round beer that we released at Stone Brewing Company. So we, we let off with our Stone Pale Ale in the uh, summer of 1996, full-time draft beer. Um, we were draft only at that point. And then in uh, the winter of 96, we released uh, Stone Smoked Porter, which we called Winter Stone at that point. We released it as a seasonal. And uh, we actually had three bar owners who really liked that beer and said, you guys should make it year-round. And at that point, we were so small, we said, yeah, we'll do that. And so we called it Stone Smoke Porter. It became a year-round year draft beer. And then uh, we decided to do a beer for our first anniversary, which was the following July, July of 97. And uh, we had also purchased a Maheen bottling line at that point. So we decided to come out with a uh, bottle and draft IPA, Stone IPA. We were heavily influenced by some of the uh, brewers in San Diego at that point. I mean, uh, Vinny Chalurzo at Blind Pig up in Temecula was doing Blind Pig IPA then. Um, Pete Sport in Solana Beach was doing their Swami's IPA, some really great local IPAs. And we said, we love those beers. We want to make one of our own. And uh, it's funny with recipe formulation. You know, some, some of them you really slave over and you do a lot of different versions of them until you feel like you got it right. And sometimes you just nail it right out of the box. And Stone IPA was one of those where it's just... I never even did a pilot batch of it. We just did it first time on, the, on our big system then, which was 30 barrels, and uh, it turned out great, and we've never adjusted anything since then, which is pretty wild, 18, 20 year, 19 years later. So, um, yeah, so it's a pretty simple malt bill. We use a little bit of uh, C15 crystal, and uh, we use, uh, actually, I take that back. Because of hop shortages, we had to change the bittering hop for a couple of years, but we, we generally use uh, U.S. Magnum for the bittering hop, and the finish is uh, Centennial and Chinook in the dry hop. And uh, we started Stone as a, it was kind of a joke at the time, but a lot of the breweries in 96 were using Cascade as their big feature hop. You know, I mean, Sierra Nevada, Pale Ale, and a lot of the beers out of the Pacific Northwest. So we, we wanted to differentiate, so we decided we're not going to use Cascade. And we actually said, we're a Cascade-free brewery. We don't use Cascade hops at all. So, And I really love the Centennial hop, and so we tried to feature that in Stone IPA. And... Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's 19 years later. It's our best-selling beer. It's incredible that it's, to me, it's incredible that it's still around and, and still doing well. And at that time, in 96, in 97, it was a very slow 
build for IPAs. You know, they were not as popular as they are now, and so it wasn't a big hit out of the gate or anything. But I think, as far as we're able to tell, we were the first year-round uh, brewed and bottled IPA in the U.S. at that time, which I think the last one before that was Ballantine's or something. Maybe you probably know. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't immediate accepts, acceptance, overnight success by any means. So it's it's grown uh, gradually over the years and, and become a really solid beer for us. And uh, I'm still I'm still proud of it, and I still drink it a lot. So I, I I love your IPAs, and just had a curious question about. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have wondered why you guys decided to change the recipe for ruination and IPA to 2.0, because I understand for the IPA, but the ruination, sort of not digging the new version, so just sort of what be went behind that. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that was a, a tough decision for us. I mean, we've decided to change a couple recipes recently, and part of it is, uh, you know, we've lived with the beer for a long time, and there's a lot of cool new hop varieties that we're pretty excited about and that we use in some of our newer beers that we thought would be fun to play with in some of these older recipes. Uh, part of it is because, you know, frankly, people don't buy the beer as much as they used to, you know? There's a lot a lot more double IPAs out there than there were. Yeah, I know, he buys it a lot, but that's... <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that happens over time, I think. Sometimes you just think, we want to try something new here. You know, we still know the old recipe. We could always go back to it if we want, but uh, we just thought it needed a little freshen up and update. And, I mean, it's funny, the, you know, the feedback we got at first was, what are you doing? Don't mess with my Ruination IPA. And then, you know, a lot of it, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of feedback we got after that was, never mind, I really like this new version. It's really cool, so... I think just in the nine years I've been there, we've made 37 IPAs. So, I mean, we make a lot of IPAs. But we do a cool thing where we do hop trials, where we take our stone IPA and dry hop it with all kinds of different varieties. I think last year we did 50-plus hop varieties. So we get excited when we're trying the stone IPA we know and love. Stone Pale Ale was the other one we changed, not the IPA. Pale Ale and Ruination. But when we try those hops that we know and love, and, and, or those beers we know and love, and we try them with all these different hops and something really jumps at us, the brewers get excited. Um, and so uh, the brain thrust between Greg and Steve and the brewers, they always come up with those new fun ideas that are really cool. Um, in just a minute, we're gonna talk, we're gonna pour you our new collaboration beer, which is gonna be really fun, but I wanna talk to you guys a little bit about the history of uh, IPAs in modern craft brewing. I've been, like I said, I've been around craft beer for a long time. Part of my pedigree is I uh, considered an expert in beer, wine, spirits, cigars, and food. Obviously, uh, very, very anything good for you, I enjoy. And I've had a cellar of over 2,500 beers for the last three decades, and been to Belgium 38 times, and had over 50,000 beers. These are all on my stone baseball card, by the way. Um, and so I, I, I've always been a big beer aficionado, and I was an IPA fan right off the bat. So before the craft beer revolution, well, actually, well, the craft beer revolution, I consider it starting 1965 when Fritz Maytag bought Anchor. Um, so this would be our 51st year, which is pretty cool. Um, craft beer. 
uh, Ballantyne Ale brewed their version of an IPA, which was aged for over a year up to 1970. I was able to try that. And then flat, uh, Falstaff actually took over that beer and brewed it. But all that time, there weren't real West Coast IPAs. And there's a lot of argument about what the first West Coast IPA was or the first American IPA. And to be honest, I'll argue with anybody about it, it was Liberty Ale. Even though they didn't call it an IPA at the time, it was the use of Cascade hops. Fritz went away from all his English-style beers he was making, and it was the first IPA. Then people always argue this, who's second, who's third? Everybody thinks Burt Grant. Burt Grant loved hops. Burt Grant was known to walk, or he started the first brew pub up in Yakima, Washington in 1982. Um, and he was a great legendary Scotsman. He used to walk around with a bottle of hop oil in his pocket, a vial, and if the beer wasn't hoppy enough, he'd squirt bottles or a little bit of the hop oil in it. And he started an IPA in 82. More English-based, but he did use West Coast hops. But really, the first full-time IPA, not full-time, excuse me, the first IPA that was produced in the craft beer industry was a little beer called Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale, 1981. I love that beer so much, I would take four guys, we'd take a panel van up to Sierra Nevada just so we can get a pallet of it for our own personal consumption three weeks before it was released in Orange County, which is where I lived. So we would go up there and do it. After that, with Burt Grant, there was uh, Bridgeport, started in 1984, and then it just went for on from there and there and there. But it was always a seasonal beer, pretty much. Uh, like Steve said, 96 was when they first started really coming out with year-round beers. Double IPAs kind of started in 94. Uh, Vinny from uh, Russian River, who was at Blind Pig in Temecula, uh, the very first beer he brewed was a beer called Inaugural Ale. It was only 7%, but he called it a double IPA. Um, to me, and, and he aged it nine months in oak chips. At the same time, John Mayer from Rogue brewed uh, I squared PA also aged nine months. So they were using this older tradition that Ballantyne and the English brewers had based off of where they'd aged the IPA. Now we know you need to consume your beers, IPAs as fresh as possible, 37 days or less preferably. That's our enjoy by date. Um, but we want you to do that. Really the first double IPA was probably in the modern era was probably any second anniversary beer, which was bigger than the first anniversary. It was about nine, 10%. Um, but that's kind of it. The other unique thing, and Ryan and I were talking about this earlier, is it was really weird because it became an IBU chase. Vinny said his first anniversary, his first beer was 100 IBUs. It probably wasn't. I'm pretty sure the second anniversary one was 120 IBUs. By the way, the very last batch of that second anniversary beer in a growler, because uh, I was purchased by Greg Cook, our other co-owner. He took the very last growler of it, and I was pissed because I was coming down the next weekend, and Vinny told me that story. But um, nice, Steve saws bottle. It's, it's not good anymore, Steve. Just keep, don't open it. Uh, but uh, we, Ryan and I were talking about the IBU battle, and it was very funny because I always followed IBUs. I was a his, beer historian. I always followed IPAs, and I always... From year to year, because they were seasonal releases, I was like, oh, White Knuckle's out, uh, this one's out, that one's out. And it was always weird, because every time I tasted the next year's batch, I always go, why did they dumb down the beer? It wasn't that they were dumbing down the beers. Our palates were changing, because the beers were getting hoppier and hoppier. So even those were, those were still amazingly hoppy and great West Coast-style beers, it always seemed like they weren't the same. And it's just because the IPAs have continually progressed, 
Then we have beers like Islander and, and Stone IPA that started, and the, now we've got full-time IPAs. IPAs, if you haven't listened to Bart, uh, Chief Accountant, is that his title? Economist. Chief Economist. Economist. He, Not just the He will tell you that IPAs are 27% of the IRI market share, the hottest trend going, and if you ask him what the next trend coming up is, he'll say IPAs. Nothing's going to beat that out. IPAs are here to stay. There's, that's what everybody wants, and it's the growing market trend. Uh, so that's a little brief synopsis of IPAs in the craft beer world. Gentlemen? And, uh, I know you, oh, you got uh, absolutely. The, the funniest thing was when I first started drinking beers, it was like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was the hoppiest beer I've ever tried in my life. It, it took me from the, the light lagers into like, oh, shit, this is, this is Pale Ale, this is IPA. And then it was the IBU chase. It was uh, getting a, a bomber of Arrogant Bastard or Stone IPA, and it was troubling to get through the whole thing. I was like, oh, shit, I don't know if I can drink all this. It's so bitter. And then now I can drink like six of them and be like, this is nothing. Bring him more. So it's, it's, it's a, that palate shift that's been the funniest thing in, in, uh, in brewing for me. And we ch we, we've seen this... IBU chase, then going into this new uh, fruity style, where the the hot farmers are really getting excited about putting pushing and putting out a very hop uh, fruity fruity forward hop of uh, varietals, but it be um, fruit punch or sometimes now uh, coconut. This, the hot farmers are really growing IPA hops for us craft brewers to do like way tropical and fruity IPAs, which I, did, I didn't think was great. I thought it was kind of like, oh, this is a new trend. This is, this is like a gimmick, but there, it's, it's, it's actually working. We're seeing these tangerine, uh, tropical fruit, danky, resiny things that are really exciting. And I, I don't know much about hop farming, but I see this like, whole excitement behind growers doing these hops that are uh, what the normal hop drinker, normal uh, beer drinker, would think this is, uh, I, can't, I can't do this. It's, it's IPAs I'm going to do. But these new IPAs are so fruit forward, so non, and the brewers making beers non-bitter, focusing on the hops. And it's just so tropical and, and fruity and exotic and so exciting and not so aggressive and like, oh, fuck you, you're not cool enough to drink this beer. And fuck you, you're not, you're not, you're, your palate's too weak. These hop growers and these brewers are allowing people to say, hey, it's okay, it's okay to get these IPAs and these, uh, these pale ales. And even, even like Belgian beers that are hot forward and saying, all right, it's going to be hot forward. We're not going to kill you. We're going to let you try these, these, ex these experimental varieties and these new hops. And then we're, we're going we're to get you into this. We're not going to crush your palate. We're not going to smash you saying you're not worthy. But, uh, it's, but it's, 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 been very, it's been very, it's very fun and exciting. But if it, again, if it wasn't for Stone, I would not be here. So there's, there's no, no hate.
we've actually done so many variation of hop trials that we've done like cascade hops that have been dried at two different bed depths, one 18 inches, one 12 inches, and they taste differently. Um, you know, the you're not worthy, the arrogant bastard thing, there, it wasn't because Greg and Steve were cocky. They just made the beers they wanted. But it was so funny. The reason why you, when you pick up an Arrogant Bastard bottle and it says, you're not worthy, you should put this down. You should go back to your lowest commodity swill and drink that. Because back when they made that beer, I used to go to the anniversary parties and I'd watch people pour it out when they'd get it. It was too big and aggressive for them. Now, Greg hates when I say this, it's a really well-balanced, big hop, big malt beer. It's right there in the wheelhouse of everybody. But back then when they first made it, it was extreme. It was crazy. People couldn't handle it. Ryan or Rick, what do you guys want to tell them about this new uh, collaboration beer? Yeah. That everybody has? Yeah, just real quick on the, oh, real quick on Ryan's, on the fruity beer. So we have a Stingray IPA downstairs. It's 7.9% alcohol, double IPA, but it's only 46 IBUs. So it's, go down try it. It's very well balanced. It's, uh, you know, it's got a nice hop profile. The prof, uh, the, the, oh, the hops on Stingray is Mosaic, Simcoe, Citra, and Southern Cross. I think, in my eyes, uh, Nelson IPA from uh, Alpine, thank you. No, Alpine. Well, Greenfly, you're right. <laughs> became this huge craze and I was like what the fuck is going on with this beer why is it so popular what's going on and I found out later that more than 50% of that beer is not Nelson it's Southern Cross so I sought out Southern Cross we we embraced it we loved it and that's one of the biggest selling points and biggest hops in our Singray IPA that tropical fruity note from that beer or from that from that hop help that beer become so easy drinkable and, and fruity and tropical. So back that, we're, we're going to the, the uh, collaboration beer we did. Jeremy Monnier from Stone has been a friend of mine for four plus years. He's not here tonight, but he definitely helped. He's in Berlin, right? He helped brew this beer two years ago. We did a collaboration with us, Stone and Green Flash. We revisited that beer that you're going to try here tonight. Uh, Chuck Silva from Green Flash is not here, so we kind of tweaked the recipe a bit and made it just stone, stone and, and, uh, and Coronado forward. So we, we focused on, on hops that we loved. Simcoe was one of the, the base hops that we loved. That fucking resiny, piney, badass, kind of old school hop is there. We brought out Mosaic, we brought out Citra, we brought out Azaka, and then dry hopped it with Azaka and Equinox. So it's like the, the piney, the resiny, the big, bold hops, and then reinforced it in the dry hop with Equinox, which is a new, new school hops that we're working on. And um, yeah, Equinox and Azaka are probably the newer, newer two, two new world hops that we've been experimenting with. It really is a big, forward, fruit punchy, really aggressive in a, in a nice way hop. So, does anyone have this beer in their hand right now? Okay. So, to balance out these big, strong hop aromas and the big, strong hop flavors, we, 
we put Maris Otter, which is a winter varietal of a of an English barley, also with Vienna malt, which is a, a slightly kilned, sweeter barley, to kind of just not not be so aggressive, not to be so hoppy. We kind of have some malt character there, which I, I'm a big malty guy. My my background is home brewing with with British beers, so I do appreciate all this British malt and flavor. So we did have to bring a little bit of uh, British Maris Otter, a little bit of uh, German, or actually uh, Viennese malt into it, just to kind of balance it out. So I'm very excited and very happy with the balance between the new school, new, school, new world variety hops with the old world malt to balance us out. It's very late end and late edition uh, whirlpooling hop flavors and, and uh, presence. And then again, a huge uh, dry hop to kind of showcase all those, those new school hops and balance it out with, with malt. I feel that sometimes, sometimes the malt gets lost and gets thrown away and new school brewers are like, yeah, we don't need any malt, but I feel we do need some malt from different varieties all across the world to balance it out. What do you all think of this beer? Thumbs up? Thumbs up? All right. I um, do. Go ahead, Paul. What's the uh, distribution on this? How much was made? Where can you find it? <laughs> One case Only here. made here, and it's in this room. <laughs> so that's the distribution, so you guys lucky ones. But it's possible. It's possible. It's, there's possibility for replication. Because these breweries are big established breweries, right? Stone's the 10th largest brewery in the United States, which AB InBev still spills more beer in a month than we make in a year. But, and you know, there's 4,300 4, plus breweries, 128 breweries in San Diego County alone. But uh, this is a beer, I do a lot of consult. Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday, yes, it's probably changed. I haven't checked my phone. Uh, we. I, we're still up in the coast of 1.9 in the United States a day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is a beer. I do a lot of consulting for small breweries. We have all these new breweries popping up, and they want me to help them with, like, their tasting rooms and stuff. And this is a beer, I, the beer style that I, I tell them, don't hurt yourself beer. This is a don't hurt yourself beer. You can't make this beer. These guys have hop contracts. They're making some of the sexiest. They, they threw in Simcoe. Citra and Mosaic in here, plus two new sexy hops. Most breweries that are small don't have hop contracts. They're buying future. They all want to replicate a beer like this. Not to mention Maris Otter is one of the most expensive barley malts there is because it's so great. So all these new breweries, they're always like, Bill, we want to do this IPA. We want to use these hops. And I'm going, so everybody's going to say your first IPA was amazing, but you've never been able to replicate it because you can't get the hops again. So I usually tell them, you know, start with CZT, Amarillo, Cascade, dry hop with one of these hops, and then you can have a bunch of different beers. You can have a Simcoe or a Citra or a Nelson or an Azaka IPA, and you can do those things and still have all these fun different IPAs that you can play with. So this is really fun being able to work for a brewery like Stone or... Rick's got Coronado and Ryan gets to work where they have the ability to pull these amazing ingredients and make these amazing beers. And you dovetailed, you dovetailed perfectly into it. Is, is 
the hops themselves. A couple years ago, we had a, a fairly significant hop shor shortage, but we, we are on the increase of breweries and then an increase of hop forward beers by those breweries. The, the amount of hops required has grown exponentially just within the last couple of year, years on the heels of a hop shortage. Where are all these hops coming from? I know you have contracts and things like that, but what about everybody else? There's another factor as well. You know, AB, MBEV, and Miller Coors buying these breweries, and they're taking them to market and, you know, upping their sales, doubling them, quadrupling them. So those hops, that's kind of our biggest, one of our biggest fears is, you know, that they're buying these breweries, and, you know, if they, they've got, you know, 10-barrel Elysian, Goose Island, and, you know, a lot of the hops that we buy, that you know, they're Pacific Northwest, and a lot of the, the big guys aren't using those hops. They are planting more fields, and these guys yeah. can probably speak a little more I mean, actually, more, the, and the, hop, the hop market for craft brewers has become international, right? I mean, originally, we were getting all of our hops were sourced from the Pacific Northwest. I mean, everything we used at Stone, but now, we're, you know, we're getting amazing hops from New Zealand. I mean, Australia has grown some great hops. Even in Europe, we're seeing some new varieties, you know, uh, yeah, Mandarina, Bavaria, and things like that that are, are coming out of traditional hop-growing areas, but, you know, places that grew hops that weren't that interesting to U.S. craft brewers, now they're growing some really amazing new varieties that, that we're using. So it's become... But it goes the other way, too. A lot of U.S. hops are being bought up by European brewers, Japanese brewers, who have been inspired by U.S. craft brewers, so there's, uh, you know, the market's moving a lot of different directions right now. Yeah, we've been very fortunate and very passionate about going and finding friends that are owning acreage and contracting through the, the hot farmer themselves and say, hey, we need to have this because I can't go through a brokerage, I can't go through all this stuff. I, I, I can personally go through to a hot field and pick you know, 5,000 pounds and say, this is ours, we picked it, we like it, good, sold, done. We, we have to. Baseball bat to wield. Cornado's got another. What about someone like Monkey Paw? I mean, uh, the how, cool, how okay, we just did a collaboration with Monkey Paw for. But, but my point is that they don't have the same purchasing power. Correct, but the coolest thing about us is we, I, I think we over contract by a little bit, just to save our ass, and then who gets who gets the the extra? Our best buds in Monkey Paw. So we are very close tied to all of our small uh, breweries in town. And we love to, to collaborate and we love to share. The coolest thing about the craft beer industry that you have to understand, if there were three widget factories within a 10 square mile area, and don't ask me what a widget is, and one of them ran out of widgets, the other two would be like, our sales are going to go up until they can get back up to production. When you're in the craft brewery industry, it's so unique in the fact that if Monkey Paw or some other brewery runs out, they can call Coronado or Stone or one of the other breweries and say, hey, can you sell us some of your excess, this, this, or other, so they can make their beer, and we're always helping out. Sure, there's always little pity fights. In any business, there's going to be when everybody's in the market to make money and grow, but we are very collaborative and 
as you can see from this beer, and we're all about willing to help. And it's a very unique thing. Even in artisanal industries like bakeries and charcuteries and cheesemongers it's, and wineries, it's not the same feel. And it's always been that. And the beauty of it is it's easy for us to be that way because it's David and Goliath. We're all in it together against the BMC beers, you know, the big fizzy yellow beers, the ones that, you know, have blue mountains that change when the bot can's cold enough, or they have the big fluffy horses that kick field goals during the halftime of Super Bowl, those kind of guys. We're all in it against them, so it's right easy for us to stay, stay close and collaborative about that. Uh, just a quick question. It's pretty much a stone question. Um, what is the sign? I know we've all enjoyed enjoy by. Everybody in here has pretty much, right? What is the science behind enjoy after? Since it's uh, being an IPA and with the hop question, that beer well. is amazing. That I'm a big Britannomyces fan. That Britannomyces is a wild yeast strain that needs time to develop. So for me, enjoy. You know, 97. I'm a big beer seller. I'm the guy that's been selling beer for over three decades and does talks about it. In 97% of all craft beer should be consumed perfectly fresh. It's at 3%, and thank God there's so many breweries and so we turn out so much beer, so there's a plethora of choices to age and cellar for up to 10, 15 years. So a Britannomyces beer is a great example of that. How many of you guys have heard of Orval, which is one of the Trappist breweries? Right. To me, Enjoy After is the, West, the San Diego Orval. Arval is dry hopped, and it's got Britannomyces, so it ages for a very long time. Britannomyces has a funky yeast characteristic that can be called uh, things like horse blanket, dirty cheese, um, gym socks, things like that. Sounds gross, but when you try it, it's amazing. And the unique thing about Britannomyces, when you first make a beer, it goes through a sick phase. And that sick phase, when you open that beer too soon, will actually have really disgusting aroma notes like baby vomit, dirty diaper, blue cheese. But when you taste it, it still tastes good. So you have to let it go through that area. So Enjoy After is a classic Britannomyces beer where we take the Enjoy By recipe, add two strains of Britannomyces, still two. And we say, do not open, because we're stoned, so we always give you mandates. Do not open it for one year, damn it. And if you hold on to it for one year, it will taste amazing. And it will taste like an Orval with hops. And the hops are still there, because Britannomyces is really cool. It works well with hops and allows that bittering to still be there. And it's a really fun beer. So if you get a chance to get some, definitely recommend having it and holding on to it. You can open it three months. You might get lucky. It might be in a good phase. When it's Brett, it goes like this, up and down, up and down, up and down. So you might catch it at the right time where it's tasting good and smelling good. But it's best to wait a year because it's only going to get better. I've had the oldest versions now, and it's been quite amazing. Oh, that beer can last 10 years easy. What's the logic behind releasing a beer and telling the consumer to wait a year as opposed to holding it in your brewery and aging it a year and then releasing it and letting the consumer drink it right away? They're all Tough pointing question. at each other on this it's one. It's a lot cheaper for us that way. <laughs> no, actually, we've learned from that. I mean... You know, it's the delayed gratification, which can, can be difficult. And, uh, but we've actually 
have taken that feedback to heart, and we're actually releasing it later now, so you don't have to wait as long for the enjoy after. So, you know, we were just so excited about it. We wanted to get it out there, and we wanted we wanted to see if people could actually wait, and a lot of people could not wait. We found out. You know, it's one of those things where Greg and Steve were always beer geeks too, and we were equal spirits together, so I always loved them. Stone's very unique. Most breweries, when you start out, you have to move your product as fast as you can. Every time Stone made an archivable beer, they would take like 100 cases, 56 barrels, 50 half barrels of it, and put it away. That's why I'm able to do 10-year verticals of things like IRS and Double Bastard and Old Guardian at my tastings. Even better question, who's crazy enough to say you have to drink a beer in 37 days you make that beer, you have a timeline to get it out. Even if you're sending it to New York, you have to have it at a certain, these are not exact numbers, so don't hold me to it, but you have like three days to package the beer, then you have to get it out next week, and then it has to be at all distribution points within a week, and then it has to be out at all on-premise and off-premise places within five days, and then in 37 days when that date comes around, if that beer's still anywhere, it needs to come back to us. And so that's crazy. Nobody does that, but we do. So. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. We like it fresh. So based on that, when are you guys going to release the unfiltered IPA year-round? Which IPA? The unfiltered. The unfiltered enjoy by? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, right now we're we're pretty capacity constrained at Stone. You know, we've been we're we've been producing everything out of our Escondido brewery. We just started brewing last week at our Richmond facility. Yeah, finally. So, uh, I mean, it's going to take us a while to dial in the beers and stuff before we're actually pumping beer out 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 of there. But uh, I think that'll give us more capacity that we'll be able to at least do it more often. I don't know if it'll be year round, but. I'm all about, sorry, my dear, I'm all, this is my personal opinion, not Stone's opinion or Coronado's opinion. I'm all about not diluting the market with multiple variations of the same kind of beer. I'm fine with releasing it at different times. We also do a tangerine one falling into that fruit IPA trend. I have to tell you, uh, 10 years ago, if you walked into a grocery store, there were going to be 11 skews of Natty Ice. Six-pack bottles, six-pack cans, long necks, 12-packs, 12-packs, 30-packs, 24-packs, some type of party ball and a, a, a bomber. It was because they wanted to keep those skews off the shelf. And as much as I love our, our brethren at Ballast Point, once Constellation came on, they added seven new flavors just to capture skews, and it's a big boy move. And so I'm always about, if you have a great beer, I love Unfiltered, I haven't told you this, I love Tangerine, I enjoy by, but... I don't want it to hurt our enjoy by, and I don't think it will. And you can do variations, but you have to be careful. That's a fine line to walk because you want to not underscore. You know, I can tell you Sculpin sales are hurting because of the other three variations of Sculpin, but they don't care because it's taking up four SKUs on the shelf that other breweries are not getting. So it's one of those things. So we'll release them separately. I'm pretty sure we'll never release them combined. I actually have a two-part question, one general and one personal. So in a general note, you guys have been around for a long time. There are new breweries popping up like every day, it seems. How do you think the craft beer scene has changed in the past 20 years? 
And then my personal question is, I moved to San Diego in my mid-20s, and the beer that got me into craft beer was the Levitation. And I'm wondering if you're going to start releasing the Levitation on a, you know, temporary basis so I can kind of grab my old craft beer scene again. Yeah, Levitation, Levi Levitation was my favorite stone beer. We, we, stole, we stole the recipe and actually did our own called Shrunken Head Red. So <laughs> thank you for releasing that recipe online. And it's one of my favorites. We've ripped you off. <laughs> We've loved that beer. And I'm sorry to see it go. It's a bummer. Buy more low ABV hoppy beers, please. We actually have another one coming out soon. That's <laughs> I don't think I can say the name of it yet. I don't want to disclose it, but uh, nah, no, I can't say it. But, uh, there was there was a second part to that question. How has the uh, craft beer world changed over 20 years? Fucking change. So last 20 years, so the first 15 years, we were pounding pavement trying to get people to take craft beer on. The last five years and the last two years have really changed dramatically with all the new breweries. Um, it's gotten more competitive, so we, you know, we all have to hold each other accountable. Um, right now, with the AB buying the brands, it's we're seeing it at retail, um, where we're getting kind of squeezed out or. Be, put in different places we don't want to be in, like the big chains. So they're putting us on the side shelves rather than where we were before on the main shelves. Um, as far as beer, um, you know, we've just evolved. Like I, I wasn't a brewer, I'm not a brewer, my brother wasn't a brewer, so we've evolved over the 20 years that we've been in business, just getting better always at our business and hiring, you know, rock star brewers like Ryan. Um, and just, you know, we're constantly under construction, so we're, you know, always building. We just got our canning line up and going. Um, yeah, so we just, we just try to keep getting better and better as we, you know, as we age. Um, winning the World Beer Cup in 2014, that, that really held us accountable. So um, immediately we built a lab in our production facility. We hired a chemist who keeps all our brewers in line. Um, one woman keeping track of eight, eight brewers, so yeah, we just, we, we just keep working on it, and uh, the market, yeah, the marketplace is changing drastically in the last two years, so I don't know, what do you, what do you see, Ryan, on, on beers? And uh, I just, I'm skeptical on trends. I'm excited to see these new kind of uh, IPAs with different Yeast, uh, just yeast, yeast varieties, and and clarity issues, being these new school things. So uh, I'm skeptical to see trends go up and up and down. I hope that in the next few years, that we kind of revert back to historical beers, Bre beers that are less than six percent alcohol, that have uh, heritage between either malts or hops from England or even Germany and pushing just the, or at least not, not pushing, but uh, educating people on uh, things that 
that are not the trends. I want to see people like not going these these like oh these this is the mosaic trend or this is the, the Simcoe trend or this new 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 world hop or yeast variety, and and really focusing on history because if it wasn't for history, craft bre- craft brewing wouldn't be around. Mitch Steele wrote a great fucking book and changed a lot of people's minds. Uh, hopefully, changed my mind. Um, I just want to see history not lost. I want to see craft brewers focusing on, yeah, there is, there's new school stuff going on, but don't forget about the history. Don't forget about what England did, what, what Germany did, what Belgium did, and it's good and bad in, in, in flavors, but it's, don't lose it. I don't want to see things that, that, kept, that started me as a home brewer or as a craft brewer to, to, to define styles. I don't, want, I don't want to see styles die out. All right, wrap us up, Bill. Okay, so styles are important. Michael Jackson, not the guy with only one glove, but the famous beer and whiskey writer was one of my mentors. And he's kind of codified the styles. And everything's cyclical, things will go and come. Um, a re- to answer your question, a really unique thing is the bigger breweries, so to speak, Coronado Stone, we're seeing a new increase with all these new nano breweries and all these new, the move for local. So we're kind of in between, that's my opinion, where we've got the big boys above us, but we've got all these little guys below us saying, they're not local anymore, they're not, you know, they're too big, they're doing this, and so it's kind of funny. So a lot of people forget about the old school breweries. It's, I see the same thing when I talk to my beverage managers at the different facilities we have. They bring these classic Belgian ales in, and they don't sell compared to the newer craft beers that are coming out because we're Americans. We want bigger, faster, stronger. So it's all about big IPAs, barrel-aged beers, and sours. So it's like that. But my greatest fear and one of the, my favorite things that I've ever heard come out of Paul's mouth was quality, quality, quality. Such a great speech you did that year. There's so many new breweries with these three-barrel, five-barrel breweries. I'm so afraid. I've been a proponent of craft beer for three over three decades. I've turned on thousands and thousands of people to craft beer. I teach it. I preach it. And it's really important to me that I don't ever have somebody walk up to me and I ask them, have you tried a craft beer? And they go, yeah, and it sucked. So it's really important to me that as consumers, as beer aficionados, we not only bring more people into the fold and they're coming in faster than we can count them because it's going to be up to 20% by the end of the decade. As far as consumer, it's important that we support great breweries and we monitor and speak out. And I'm not saying publicize that this brewery sucks. I'm saying it's important that you support the breweries that make quality. And if you don't like the beer at a place, don't support it or help them even more. I go all the time and say, hey, I'm sorry, you're, I, you have issues. It's hard for a new startup to go hear me say, uh, you need to dump all your beer, clean everything, check your recipes and your raw ingredients. And the ones that succeed are like, yeah, can you send brewers over to help us or whatever? And the ones that say F you, Dr. Bill, are like, they're not going to be around very long, but I'm worried about what they do through that. So I always like to do a toast at the end of my talks and things. So if everybody can hold up their glass, we'll be real loud and say all hail craft beer on three. 
One, two, three. All, All hail, hail craft, craft beer. beer. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thanks, cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody. And I also want to cheers to the next 20 years. All right, thank you all for coming. There's about another half hour left to savor, so let's go have some more beer and food. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor, or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.